0: Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, I should say. This is the third presentation in the series Loving Battle, uh, Loving War. And our speaker today is Thomas Kuhner, uh, the Strassler Professor in Holocaust History at Clark University in Massachusetts. Uh, Professor Kuhner followed the normal German tradition of doing his first work on a totally different subject from his second. He began with a doctoral dissertation on the electoral culture in Wilhelmine, Germany uh, a thesis which was completed in 1992 at the University of Tübingen and won the German National Parliament's Prize for Research in Parliamentary History he then switched to uh, military history gender history and uh, his last book uh, uh, just about to come out is on mass killing, war and genocide in 20th century Germany he has taught at the University of Konstanz the University of Weingarten, the University of Bielefeld, and uh, our paths first crossed when he was spending a year at the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton, and I was corresponding with Nicola de Cosmo, our first speaker, and I was looking for someone who could talk to us about uh, the German army and its uh, apparent love of battle, and uh, Nicola said to me, well, there's only one person you, you, you need. You need Thomas Kuhn." So here, without more ado, to speak about this, the male bonding and shame culture of Hitler's soldiers, on this a singularly appropriate day, is Thomas Kuhn.
1: Thank you, uh, Jeffrey, for this uh, friendly introduction. Uh, and furthermore, for this uh, invitation at all, and thank you all for coming here. Uh, indeed, it's uh, a special date today. Sixty years ago, Adolf Hitler uh, celebrated his 56th birthday uh, in April 20, 1945. Um, it was, as you know, um, also his last uh, birthday. However... What I am going to tell you about now is not um, Hitler. Hitler is not the focus of my talk. It's about Hitler's soldiers. The ordinary soldiers, lower rank officers, non commissioned officers, um, and mainly privates, Um, many, mostly of them, were drafted and only a few volunteered. The reason why I do that, why I don't focus on Hitler, um, has to do with recent controversies in Germany, um, but not only in Germany. In the last decade of the 20th century, Germany was reunified, but only in a very formal sense. Actually, Germany was deeply divided not only socially and economically, between East and West, but culturally as well. The discussion about the Nazi past divided the younger from the older generation, and it engaged much wider sections of the German population than ever before. The question that younger Germans debated was about the degree to which their fathers and grandfathers had participated in the mass murder of the Jews. The main focus of the discussion of the 1990s was no longer political structures and ideologies or the few criminals at the top level of the Nazi regime. The crimes of the ordinary man and and their participation in the regime, their support and connivance were now on the agenda of this new discussion about the Nazi past ordinary men that were, above all, the soldiers of the Wehrmacht. Some 17 million were drafted or volunteered, about 10 million survived the war, and even in the last decade of the 20th century, nearly every family in Germany had a relative who had served as a soldier under Hitler. The Wehrmacht soldiers had carried on total war for almost six years. They had done so for the most part under catastrophic living conditions, struggling merely to survive. At the same time, soldiers of the Wehrmacht, not all but a huge part, were involved in the worst crimes in the history of humanity. However, there was never any sign that collective protest or collective rejection of the war was being planned on a broad social basis. The cohesion of the Wehrmacht and its military efficiency were unbroken until Germany's capitulation. Why? Why did so many get involved and stay involved? This question uh, has two levels, of course. Participation in warfare is not the same as participation in war crimes or in genocide and killing soldiers, is not the same as murdering civilians or POWs. Though both problems are related in this historical case. And it is just this relation that attracts recently both public debates and scholarly research. In Germany and in other countries, a quite provocative exhibit gave proof just of the participation of ordinary soldiers in the Holocaust. The post-war generation, that is, the younger Germans, came in the 1990s to the general conclusion that there was little difference between the misdeeds of ordinary soldiers who had been conscripted and those of the small numbers of murderous commandos comprising Himmler's elite guard. In one of the numerous uh, public discussions with Wehrmacht veterans, a young student expressed what many others surely believed when he said, and I'm quoting, there were definitely plenty of soldiers there who enjoyed bumping people off. <coughs> mass killing and mass murder as pleasure. This seems to be the most radical form of loving war. The former soldiers, however, the veterans in the 1990s contrasted that demonic image of with their own image of themselves as war victims and as altruists. They referred to the suffering that the war had caused them and to some kind of humanity they had maintained despite the inhumanity of the war. It wasn't just a a lust for violence or anti-Semitic fanatism that gave them as soldiers the strength for battle, but rather, as they told, solidarity with their homeland, and above all, comradeship. The answers to those questions I mentioned, why did so many soldiers get involved and stay involved? The answers to these questions provided by scholars are divided as those given by contemporary witnesses and by the the younger generation. A broad tradition of research refers to the ideology of racism that provided a possible reason for the maintenance of fighting morale as well as for mass murder. A rather different answer refers to group conformity within the so-called primary groups and it refers to military discipline. I don't want to bother you with a review of that research. Instead, I have to draw your attention to a related problem. When researchers refer to group solidarity or when veterans refer to comradeship, they usually mean that they fought just as other soldiers had always fought and killed. From the other point of view, however, the Wehrmacht soldiers represent the breakdown of civilization per se that began some decades earlier but resulted in the Nazi cult of violence and mass murder. Only the German capitulation in 1945, the alleged zero hour, serves to separate that time of increasing violence, starting with the First World War in Germany, from a subsequent phase characterized by extraordinary willingness to to live peacefully and democratically that continues today. (coughs) But how was one born from the other? peace from war and democracy from terror. How do these extremes, if I may quote Hobsbawm's famous book on the 20th century, how do these extremes fit together? This question is all the more compelling because the same people practiced both terror and democracy. After all, it's precisely this war generation that chiefly represents the 20th century from a uh, demographic point of view. So all the answers to the question for participation in war and Holocaust are concerned with the problem of continuity and discontinuity of Germany's 20th century. Now there are two questions. The first one is, why did so many soldiers take part in such a horrific war for so long? And the second question is, what place do Hitler soldiers occupy in the continuity and discontinuity of the 20th century? I would like to propose an answer to both these questions by placing the model of comradeship at the center of a history of Nazi war experiences, that is, to the experiences of the perpetrator society. My thesis is the way in which the participants of the Nazi war understood their actions, feelings and experiences and the way they actually behaved. That means the social culture of the Wehrmacht was influenced by a symbolic order of war that social memory had developed since 1918 as the myth of comradeship. And it was just this myth that granted a kind of continuity from the Nazi war to civil society after 1945. I will first turn my attention to that social culture and to the experiences of the Wehrmacht soldiers. Then I will consider, consider more shortly that how that model of comradeship built up continuities among the discontinuities of Germany's 20th century. The first part, by the way, is based mainly on private letters of the soldiers and on their diaries, their personal diaries. The second part is based on journals, memoirs, war novels, and other published materials. (coughs) Comradeship, uh, to put it in a very general um, general way, might best be understood as that notion that made soldiers loving war. Comradeship stood for homosocial warmth, which was soft and had feminine connotations, although it was produced exclusively by men. Comradeship was a code word for the homoerotic fabric of military male bonding. As a comrade, one was obliged not always to demonstrate only male toughness, but also to be affectionate and to express tender feminine feminine feelings. Comradeship, therefore, was the code word of everything a civil society regards as humanity. Jochen Klepper, for instance, was a poet and protestant. In addition, he was married to a Jewish woman. For this reason, he was dismissed from the Wehrmacht in 1941, after having served as a private on the Eastern Front for about a year. That was a great time for him. It allowed him to experience male comradeship. comradeship neutralized, for him and for lots of other soldiers, warlike violence, troublesome group culture, and not least the generally widespread anti-Semitism. comradeship kept an affectionate and altruistic male community together that also allowed for physical closeness. He emphatically wrote, I will not forget those nights during the war that I spent at the camp with my comrades. Kleber's belief in comradeship was not questioned by the experience of daily tensions, intrigues, and cruelties. He interpreted them as a test of masculinity. At the end of uh, his short time in the military, he satisfactorily came to the conclusion that he had passed this test. He wrote in his diary, How do order and horrible confusion face each other in my life? Yet by now I have also experienced something new and positive, namely that I fit in with other men. For Klepper, whom the Nazis had made an outsider, Being a man meant to adapt himself socially to other men. And this was the idea he shared with most of the other Wehrmacht soldiers. It did mean not to belong to those soldiers who, not least in Kleber's eyes, had made themselves outsiders through uncommeredly egoistic behavior by refusing to adapt to the social machinery of the military. Comradeship was a military virtue that was ambiguous as it based on an exchange deal. Help, support, and security in exchange for conformity and subordination. (coughs) To be a good comrade meant helping always one's comrades, emotionally and physically, sharing the loving gifts from home with them, listening to the worries and emotional distresses, of one's comrades as well as being prepared to come to one's comrades rescue even at the risk of one's own life. The comrade was the one who gave himself and his individuality up for the community, who conformed, who participated when and wherever necessary. Comradeship was not a voluntary matter, it was a must. That was the difference between comradeship and friendship. Friends were bodies you would choose by yourself. Comrades were bodies you got if you liked them or not. The humanity of the comrades was limited to the in group. No inclusion without exclusion. That's the rule of the rule all social life is built upon. The most important outgroup was the enemy in the battlefield or in the ideology, to be sure. But there were not only exterior enemies, but internal enemies as well. And these were even more important for the social life of the soldiers as the exterior enemies. Whoever excluded and isolated himself, whoever did not want to sacrifice his own life, for that of the group was threatened with an unbearable existence, as an officer recalled around 1930. Comradeship, this officer mentioned, entailed strict discipline. It suppressed the malicious, unreliable, and uncomrade elements, as that officer said lots of Wehrmacht soldiers got a feeling of what he meant, above all, as early as their time as recruits. There were disciplinary measures used, sharp ridicule, the doghouse, social isolation, and not least physical and at times even deadly force, which the so-called Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost exercised against outsiders at night or before. To understand this ambiguity of solicitude and harassment, we have to look at the morals, the ethics of comradeship. The morals, you know, uh, are those principle, uh, those principles that help us to decide what might be good and what might be evil. We are used to sort of a timeless meaning of morals. Good and evil have not changed since yesterday, says Aragon in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, formulating a rather popular illusion. We need such illusions of timeless stability. They spend us certainty where uncertainty rules. But as historians, we have to be well aware that morals are socially constructed and definitely not beyond time, culture, or society. If we are going to analyze the history of morals, we may learn from cultural anthropologists who are concerned with the opposite of shame culture and guilt culture. Guilt culture is seen as the moral paradigm of Western modernity. A society under the influence of guilt culture trains its members to be responsible for their own actions. The question of morals here is, first and foremost, a case for introspection. Guilt is experienced individually and is dealt with in dialogue with God or with the superego. In shame culture, On the other hand, the suspicious and controlling gaze of the community sets itself up as the highest moral authority. Shame is grounded in the fear of exclusion, exposure, and disgrace, which the community assigns to the individual who does not submit to its rules. Shame culture dominates in tribal cultures, but also in some Asian societies, for example, in Japan. But in general, both moral paradigms arise in variable proportions in every society. The question, of course, is in what ratio? In military societies, shame culture always may be more important than in civil societies. But exactly this difference evaporated in Germany after 1918, after the First World War, and during the Nazi era, Uh, the Nazi era in particular. At that time, shame culture attained significance which is otherwise most unusual for industrial societies. Shame culture trains one to be inconspicuous, to conform, to participate, and to be happy by doing so by being in good hands with the group, by enjoying security and relief by the community. That's just the same what, uh, of what comradeship meant for the Wehrmacht soldiers. The ethics of comradeship were defined from a functional point of view. Everything that benefited the community was good. Everything that threatened the community was bad. The ultimate test for the willingness to conform in the Wehrmacht was the collective breaking of the norm. Such community building through forbidden and criminal means do not have the same meaning for men as it did for women. For men, it was a privilege and a duty. In order to be acknowledged as a man among men, one had to be prepared to do forbidden or at least disreputable things. And these had to be done in the company of and under the watch of other men. What was for, what was considered forbidden and which norm was to be violated depended on the circumstances and the composition of the group. During their time as recruits, the soldiers would actually practice breaking the norm in the form of small conspiracies against superiors. One malicious sergeant, Um, at about 1940, was a victim of a nasty trick played against him by his subordinates. One evening, while he was drunk and fast asleep, they secured a padlock around his testicles and withdrew the key. (coughs) The sergeant had to carry out his duties the next day with his hand in his trouser pocket and had an awful day to the delight of his recruits. The unlucky sergeant, of course, demanded that the culprit reveal himself. But the group stuck by and shielded the perpetrator. Together, and that's the real point here, they got through the uh, the inevitable punishment with sporting and conspiratorial indifference comradeship evolved out of defense against the terror of the superiors. It was a source of strength that substituted power, safety and security for the powerlessness, powerlessness, insecurity and loneliness of the soldiers. It also protected some who innocently got ground in the wheels of the military penal system. Under the protection of such comradeship, even Homosexuals and opponents of the Nazi regime could stay in the Wehrmacht. The group that protected them, rather than squealing on them, demonstrated and strengthened its own unity. Only then it, ex- it did experience the feeling of social bonding that is male bonding. But in the Wehrmacht, comradeship was not an engine of resistance against the Nazi regime or its terror machine. There were other rules and norms to be broken than those of the regime. The rules to be broken were, above all, those of civilians. Generally speaking, that is, the values of that world the soldiers had left, voluntarily or involuntarily. A comrade was always someone with whom one could get up to some mischief. This is how a lieutenant formulated it in his diary in 1943. For him and innumerable other soldiers, getting into mischief together meant above all one thing, chasing women. That lieutenant was married, but that too was the point. It was the adultery that he repeatedly committed, along with his comrades, that made a soldier's life so attractive to him. And it wasn't only about sexual needs. At least as important was being able to boast about one's sexual adventures to the other comrades. Sexual boasting belonged to the formation of male community just as much as tender homoerotic behavior. Both demonstrated the social sovereignty of the male, bond, the male bond, its independence from real women, its elevation above the family and the home, above civil society and civil morals. The moral grammar of comradeship always followed the same rule. Everything was allowed as long as it enriched and intensified social life and coherence of men. Everyday life of of the soldiers, even of the Wehrmacht soldiers was often boring and not at all comradely. particularly when no military action was taking place, when no external threat was evident, friction and infighting spread but where no enemy existed, one had to be created raids against the subjugated civilian population in the east brought some variety to the dreariness of everyday life, not unlike the fighting against military enemies. In the spring of 1943, Lieutenant Werner Goss and his men rode with horses and coaches as they ransacked villages, combed woods, and cleared the area of bands, as he proudly wrote in a letter to his parents. Bands, or gangs, was the Nazi word for partisans. We lived, wrote Gross, like gypsies and vagabonds. These cleansing operations provided the comrades with an invigorating magic portion, a social awareness that they were elevated above the morals of civil society as well as above international war laws. The principle of male bonding through breaking the norm blurred the boundaries to crimes of all sorts. The National Socialist War was planned as genocide and was carried out as genocide. The Wehrmacht's involvement in carrying out this war of destruction was made easier. Indeed, it was demanded by the morals of comradeship. The ethics of comradeship belonged to a morality that did not concern itself with either the personal responsibility of the victim or the personal conscience of the perpetrator. This morality was that it trained the soldiers to switch off all thoughts, feelings, or actions in the categories of individual lifestyle and individual responsibility. Whoever killed and excluded with the community, whoever bent to group pressure, Whoever sacrificed his individual identity and his personal life for the community could be certain that no personal guilt would be attributed to him, no no matter what he did. Those were the ethics of comradeship. We know that many soldiers had scruples about the crimes against the civilian population. And we do know that not all soldiers were willing to participate in the mass murder of Jews in the same way. There were differences. Christopher Browning's findings in regard to a police battalion, in that respect, would be true for other units, not least for the Wehrmacht. But the question we have to answer is why and how these differences were leveled out. It was the morals of comradeship that is the absolute priority social life of the own group had that managed exactly this problem. The scruples some soldiers got were chocked in the dichotomy between the so-called human life of their group and the alleged inhumanity of the enemy. Attacks by partisans offered grounds for the murder of civilians, especially of Jews, because due to the Nazi propaganda, all Jews were partisans. Group Honor, which screamed for and also excused revenge, legitimized the massacres against the defenseless. And where there were no partisans, they were imagined, and the population at large was murdered instead, because the group, not just the individuals, demanded for actions of violence to prove itself. What I'm talking about is not just group pressure, as, for example, uh, Stanley Milgram and Christopher Browning did. Group pressure is only one side of the problem. What what, What is at stake here is the conception of the male bond as a kind of social sovereign. That is, as a founder of social life. What does that mean? Social bonding, through breaking the norm, meant to establish itself as the highest authority on what is good or evil, that is, on the rules of society. The male bond had, in the soldier's self-perception, the power of laying down those rules. But it was not only the symbolic order of society that was defined by the male bond. The male bond proved social creativity in a more practical sense as well. Above all, at the Eastern Front, the platoons and sometimes much larger larger units were often reduced by large in a couple of hours or days due to the heavy fights. The so-called primary groups that is, the family-like libidinous communities, which were based on a long period of face-to-face contacts, were continuously destroyed as a result of the massive losses of the Wehrmacht in the Eastern Front. Hence, Holocaust historian Umar Bartov concluded in his path-breaking books on Hitler soldiers that the fighting spirit of the Wehrmacht could not have depended on the cohesion of the primary groups. As lots of military sociologists thought before. However, in this respect, not in others, Bartov is wrong. The massive losses and the destruction of the primary groups did not impair the motivation to fight and to kill. And that is not only due to racist fanatism, a dr- uh, by the way, draconian military discipline, and a kind of barbarization, as Bartov thought. Lower-ranking military leaders in the Wehrmacht were trained to weld together new combat units quickly, and the soldiers were used to constantly having to adjust to different social milieus and units. Comradeship depended not only on how long a certain close group of comrades were together. The experience of mass death did not destroy social coherence of the Wehrmacht. Quite the contrary was true. The soldiers were proud of being able to reconstruct social cohesions within a few days, sometimes within a few hours. And the social horizon of the soldiers more and more narrowed to the company or the platoon. non-commissioned officer got into raptures about his company in early 1945 when the war was nearly over, but he didn't realize that. We are in the best mood, he wrote to his family at home, had never been better. Staying together, fighting together, or getting wounded, that's what we want in our platoon. The experience of mass death, that's what he he is expressing, the experience of mass death was combined with the experience of surviving comradeship. Physical destruction became the basis of social life, of, of a quite intense social life. Now, one might argue that the conception of the male bond as a kind of social sovereign and such community building through breaking the rule were not limited to Hitler's soldiers. That is true. As the research of historians, sociologists and anthropologists in other wars or other military organizations and not least in <coughs> certain gangs and rites of uh, initiation show, such social mechanisms are widespread, perhaps all over the world and throughout world history. So it is rather important to avoid one-dimensional explanations. We can't explain the Holocaust or the Wehrmacht fighting morale by only referring to the male bond. We have to be well aware of the specific historic context of such male bonding. We have to refer not only to sociology, but also to ideology, to the state, that is, to history. Anti-Semitism was deeply anchored in the mentality of the Germans at that time. The racist ideology paved the way for the self-dynamic of their social life the soldiers experienced and practiced. But the most important difference between, let's say, American soldiers in the Vietnam War and German soldiers in the Nazi War, the most important difference is the fact that in Nazi Germany, the state arranged and guided community building by criminal means. Hitler himself was well aware of such sociology of crime. Once, in already in 1923, ten years before he came into power, he explained that there were, I am quoting a speech, two things which are capable of uniting people, common ideals and common crime. What that meant became clearer when Hitler publicly praised some Stormtrooper uh, trooper members, you know, the elite uh, unit of the uh, Nazi party, um, <coughs> when, some, when when Hitler publicly uh, praised some SA members who had murdered a communist at uh, Potempa in a famous telegram in 1932 as My Comrades. And it got, got much more important with a collective murder Uh, In in 1933, with the collective murder of the SA leader, Ernst Röhm, and other uh, inner party opponents of Hitler at that time. This murder was committed by um, some elite members of the Nazi party and uh, the old um, military in Germany, And insofar, this murder united the old elites of Germany military and the new elite of the Nazi party by a common crime. And so the process of uniting a whole people by crime went on with the actions of the Gestapo, the SS, and all the other units and organizations that carried out the politics of extermination from 1939 on. Most important for the soldiers, for the drafted uh, soldiers, were the so-called criminal orders issued, issued by the Wehrmacht in respect to the attack of the Soviet Union in 1941, which in practice allowed soldiers to murder Jews and other civilians or POWs without being prosecuted. These orders served as a means to integrate the Wehrmacht into the large community of criminals. And so, even if the regime did not allow people to talk frankly about the mass murder of Jews, sometimes Nazi leaders, like as Hermann Göring, reminded the Germans in their radio speeches in 1942 and later on to what the whole German people, and not only the Nazi elite, had done with the Jews. It is once again rather important to emphasize the role of the state in those things I am concerned with. But states do not suddenly drop off, drop out of the blue. That is above all true in respect to the Nazi state. It was the German society that made possible the Nazi seizure of power and its stabilization from 1933 on. There has been done lots of research uh, in why Germans backed Hitler. One of the most convincing recent explanations points out to the longings for order the Germans had after so much disorder in the Weimar democracy. The Nazi state guaranteed such order by terror against outsiders. That is above, above all against Jews. But it is not only the longing for order. Germans were obsessed with and the Nazis granted. As much as important as the longing for order was the longing for community, for a great and large community, a nationwide community, the Germans had missed much longer than order. And it was just this longing for the so-called Volksgemeinschaft, that is, the people's community, the Nazis granted by terror, murder, and crime. The Nazi seizure of power was made possible among other facts of course by some rather strong longings for a state which should be organized like a kind of military platoon that is like a unit, like a front unit of comrades. These longings were deeply anchored in the German society before 1933 and they were definitely not an invention of the Nazis but of the bourgeois, mil- bourgeois milieu and uh, some parts of the workers' movement as well. It was a myth of comradeship that paved the way to shame culture in Germany after 1918, and it was just this shame culture which finally served as the cultural background of the Nazi society. The Nazi society presented itself as a nation of comrades, that is, as a nation that stuck together by comradeship chip was an experience already made during the First World War and it became a model for mythical interpretation from then on. It brought about symbolic order in the chaos of war experiences in the epoch of total war. Myths can overcome experiences of contingency and bring about collective unity in that they make history appear to follow the rules of nature or divine providence. Sometimes myths simply appear as fate and therefore appear to provide guidance on how to act in the present situation. The myth of comradeship grew up during and in the aftermath of the First World War. But it was not only based on accounts of trench community in the war but also on those that belong to the nebulous past on Christian tradition, for instance, in particular to the New Testament, then on the Nibelungenlied, and especially on a song, on a, on a quite popular song of the Good Camerate that was written by um, Ludwig Uhland during the German Wars of Liberation in the early 19th century. All these texts give an account of the love and solidarity that existed among men in dangerous worlds where death was omnipresent. And I also offer a promise to all new comrades. Those who behave in that mythical ways are standing in old in holy traditions. Their behaviour is beyond any moral doubt. The myth of comradeship depicted a picture of society free of all problems the German society had just with such dichotomies with gender wars, with class struggles, with a divided nation, with the burden of a lost war after 1918, with the inheritance of mass death. The stories of comradeship in war described alternative worlds to the failed development development of a civil society as well as to the destructive power of the war machine. In the comradeship of front soldiers, all civil struggles, between poor and rich, worker and employer, Conservatives and Socialists, Protestants and Catholics were overcome, according to the myth. The group of comrades represented the ideal of a nation and namely a peaceful, not an aggressive nation. In the myth of comradeship, the soldier does not appear as an agent of destruction, but rather as a human being who longs for home security and harmony. The myth of comradeship formed the starting point of a cultural consensus that united two competing camps of post-1918 collective war memory, the socialists and the nationalists. Although, although leftist war memory disavowed the right-wing legion of comradeship in all ranks between officer and enlisted man, the socialist veterans movement contributed to the myth of comradeship. What marked both leftist and rightist memory was the apotheosis of a community that consisted exclusively of men. Womenly gestures and rituals of affection, of empathy and devotion served in both cases as the bond of the community. And this picture served in both cases to cleanse veterans of any involvement in mass killing. And so far, the longings for community were coupled with the societies coming to terms with the moral burden engendered by the piles of corpses the First World War had left behind. After 1918, the experience of the horror and destruction of an industrial war and one's own participation in the immense violence of the war could could no longer uh, be categorized as individual guilt and responsibility. The the collective memory after 1918 of these orgies of destruction concealed the I in the we. In that we, personal responsibility was dissolved. Communities of comrades resigned to their fate were able to neutralize their aggression towards those outside of the community through altruism inside the community. After 1945, for the Germans, the needs of such a myth got even stronger than after 1918, as now the whole society was stigmatized by having participated not only in mass death, but also in mass murder. Comradeship lived on the pride felt by breaking the morals of civil society. But at the same time, it maintained moral islands. Islands of peace of the middle, in the middle of the war, islands of humanity in the midst of inhumanity of violence and cynicism. This genus-faced quality and its symbolic potential for integration proved to be essential in the collective remembrance of the war. The former soldiers washed their hands of the crimes against humanity by remembering the humanity they had practiced among themselves. A prominent West German politician explained at the veterans' meeting in 1956, the comradeship, and I'm quoting, the comradeship, mutual help, mutual commitment, which the soldiers demonstrated in the war and were again demonstrating in their meetings now, is a part of the foundation on which the new, and he meant the new um, West German democratic state, was built because the spiritual elements of the democratic state are respect, care, and concern for one another, for the benefits of all. Now, um, the younger generation, or the younger generations, had no understanding for this any longer. Comradeship was a model of a social community that, besides relieving the individual of the burden, Of personal responsibility also deprived him of the chance to lead his own life. There was no place for this in individualized society in the 1970s, 1980s, and even more in the 1990s. What had held the myth of comradeship together until then, altruism and aggression, morality and immorality, broke apart. In this new context, the aura of crime on which comradeship had always survived cast the comrades in a new light, occasionally revealing them as murderers. But it took a long time until the myth of comradeship was as fundamentally questioned as it was in the 1990s. Such questioning came to the fore for the first time in the 1980s when members of the war generation were retiring from active working life. In this decade, in the 1980s, younger people were taking over influential positions of power in politics, the economy, and not least in the cultural sector, in schools, universities, and in the mass media. Around 1990, this process of generational renewal had been completed. And with it, the short 20th century, that is, the period from 1914 to 1990, the short 20th century uh, was over. But in the meantime, comradeship, the model of shame culture, was one of the elements that had provided unity to Germany's own age of extremes. Thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this kind of, uh, what I describe, this comradeship, um, you would find it in um, more or less all uh, other wars, at least in the 20th century and maybe even before. Uh, The difference is that, um, I guess, with all, let's say, American wars in the 20th century, there was a clear distinction between military and civil society. Whatever the soldiers did, they knew or they should knew, sh- they should know that they would return into a intact civil society. That is a society which did not share the morals of community building by criminal means. Th- that's the difference to the Nazi society. The soldiers, the Wehrmacht soldiers, did not know that after 1945 in Germany there would be built up a democratic state with a quite well-functioning civil society. They had to expect that any kind of totalitarian um, fascist regime would survive That the end of the war, even if the soldiers at a certain point, let's say 1943, 1945, uh, 1944, 1945 or so, that's not n- not really clear, but most of the soldiers probably had any kind of idea that this war, uh, uh, that the, the Wehrmacht won't win that war. <coughs> Nevertheless, they, um, at, the, at the time of the war, uh, the whole German society was militarized and was in a certain way criminalized by the by participating, even in a passively sense, into the Holocaust. And, as I said, the soldiers um, had to to expect that they would return at any point in such a society, which would uh, keep the values uh, the Nazi state had um, pushed forward. That's the difference. And that's, uh, I mean, so far, the difference is not not, uh, the small units, and not the social life in these small units. The difference comes from outside the military, from how the rest of the society is organized. I mean, I don't want to talk in regard to the Nazi society as a civil society, but um, sort of the the rest, uh, the uh, the outside world. That's the difference, I think, to put it in a a short sense. And, you know, I mean, even if... uh, (coughs) um, there are some discussions about uh, the relation of um, uh, the government of this, the federal government of this country, uh, and uh, Abu Ghraib, etc. Um, there, I mean, there are differences between uh, the criminal orders the Wehrmacht uh, issued and uh, what happened in uh, in or before Abu Ghraib. It's not, you know, it's it's not. Uh, criminal war organized by the state. That's uh, the. I mean, not. yeah, That's what's um, what makes the Nazi war exceptional. Yeah,
2: please. You mentioned that in, in Nazi Germany, more people were drafted than volunteers. What was the percentage of people who were drafted versus people who volunteered? Why do you think? The, why was that difference? Why? Why did it?
1: We don't have uh, figures about the percentage, unfortunately. We don't have any figures, any uh, any um, uh, any sure any figures for sure. We don't have these figures, and so you c- the only thing you, what you can do is um, to estimate uh, these figures, and these estimations would be uh, quite unsure, to be honest. I mean, it's just uh, the only thing what you can do is uh, to look at. Uh, um, uh, you know, personal uh, memories, uh, diaries, etc. And then you would see that usually a member of the working class did not volunteer. The lower classes did not volunteer. Usually, there are exceptions, of course, but and that um, means that at least seventy or eighty percent of the Wehrmacht were not, uh, did not join the army voluntarily. But I mean these figures, seventy, eighty percent. Drafted and maybe 20%. I mean, these figures are quite unsure. I won't um, give a guarantee for these figures. Maybe only 10% who volunteered. Why
2: big difference? I mean, if that's, those figures are close, I'm surprised because the Nazis
1: were famous keep for
2: keeping all sorts of records. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't keep records on that. But why? Uh, okay. Why is
1: so, so you know, the estimate um, so private? Yeah, for that you have to know that uh, when the Second World War was started in uh, 1939 with the attack on Poland, this war was quite unpopular in Germany. Um, It was definitely unpopular, uh, and we know about that uh, for quite sure, because um, uh, uh, an organization of the Nazi state, the so-called Sicherheitsdienst, that is a kind of uh, security police, um, uh, uh, spend lots of energy in sort of um, um, reporting the set, the mood of the population of the people. Yeah, uh, like it's like as a uh, you know like as a kind of um, um, a demoscopic uh, uh, enterprise, and these uh, reports are um, are saved. You are able to read them at least in Germany. I don't in Germany I don't know if they are translated right now, but um, they are. We know about that. And from that you can see that you would see that um, most parts of Germans did not like that war. There was a huge difference between the war enthusiasm at the beginning of the First World War in 1914 and at the beginning of the Second World War. People were afraid of that war. They had a good ex- good memory, good remembrance of the terror and of the, the you know the um, what happened 30 years before. They were afraid of losing that war. Um, this changed with the, the huge the, the massive um, six victories in 1940 over France um, etc in the West as well as in the east um, but even then in the 1940s there was no as far as we know you know we don't have the exact figures but uh, as far as we know we, there was no mass uh, volunteering Movement in Germany. People just still were afraid of losing their life or the lives of their uh, relatives in that war. And I mean, they had good reason for uh, being afraid of that. That was the reason why uh, there was no mass uh, volunteering movement in Germany. Um, I mean, you would find, of course, personal testimonies which uh, would give proof just of the contrary that is, fun, uh, of volunt- uh, volunteering. Yeah. But it's only a small a small part of the population who really did that. <laughs> I lost the overview, sorry. Please.
3: In the industrial working class, these practices of comradeship, that, you know, of course, they're most famous for groups like coal miners. Yeah. But that male working class, industrial working class culture really defines itself in opposition both to the bosses and sort of bourgeois society, also in opposition to the feminine and domestic society. So, in a sense, it has that.
1: Absolutely. I mean you're absolutely right. That is one of the sources. Uh, other similar sources mm-hmm. you would find in the rural population. Uh, the, Euro, the, the lower uh, classes um, uh, in the rural population had uh, similar, or was used to similar um, social practices. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, that um, uh, plays a, 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 a big role in that. Absolutely. Um I mean, you know, the, I, I I might have uh, referred to that uh, more than I did. I did not because these uh, practices of social bonding, um, defined as enemy. Um, I mean, the, these practices of social bonding were. Organized on a uh, class-based worldview, and that's the difference to the Nazi system. There was no, in, in the Nazi system there was no class struggle, at least not in, uh, especially not in the Wehrmacht. Of course, there were these tensions between, um, uh, you know, w- between privates and officers, etc., etc. But even these tensions were, um, to a certain, I mean, to a quite uh, high degree. Uh, Levelled out. That's I mean, th- these tensions did exist. They happened sometimes, um, but uh, the surprising thing is that often soldiers were amazed uh, about the fact that there were no tensions. There was comradeship among officer uh, between officer and private. So there was a le- at least the idea or the a kind of utopia of uh, an erasure of class. Um, tensions and or the, 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 the tension between um, military ranks. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you, uh, I would agree with you uh, in wondering what, what is more uh, dangerous um, <coughs> in regard to the Nazi war and the Nazi society both came together. You know, that's, uh, that might be, uh, that sounds paradoxical, but it was just the case. The soldiers uh, might imagine uh, they were uh, the new sovereign, you know, did not care for the rules, the morals of the civil society, the so-called civil society. I mean, you know, Nazi society is not a civil society, but <coughs> let's put it that way. Uh, and at the same time, uh, um, the, the 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 morals of uh, these military units uh, were sort of blended with the with the renewal uh, of uh, the morals of the rest of the society. So both of both came together, and that. Um, that's the background, the cultural background of the Holocaust. Please.
2: Thank you, sir. I'm looking for you to help me here. I understand that you said that one of the key components of camaraderie comrad- and cohesion is this kind of predilection for criminality and willingness to break rules to enhance the truth. In other words, man, with sociopathic apologies, it can make the result. But isn't that inherently contradictory in that Those men who are criminals with criminal tendencies, as it shows in January 1946 study and the Schill study in 1977, the American deserters showed that those men were the most dysfunctional. Were the men who displayed an inability to be assimilated, to give and receive affection, and had criminal backgrounds in their civilian.
1: Um, of course group cohesion is based on danger Uh, no doubt with that no doubt (coughs) Um, however um, what you are are referring to are different kinds of crime or criminals the one thing the deserter is that person which is defined by the military as outsider because he does not function as he is supposed to Um, what I'm talking about is a kind of um, is another kind of uh, uh, crime Um, that is uh, I mean you know the deserter longs to be back uh, to get back to the civil society you know he he does not want to participate in the military world he wants to get back to the civil society home etc. to the in a certain way you might uh, you might say to the values of home family etc uh, whereas uh, what I was talking about in regard to the to uh, male bonding by criminal means is um, first of all it is a collective uh, thing where the deserter is a lonely person usually and it is uh, The definition of this crime is just that it is opposed to the values of the civil society of those people who are at home. It's mean, you, 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 I mean, I often, I mean, when I when I am talking about or when I am presenting this view on the Wehrmacht soldiers, uh, I mean, there's often the the argument that um, the way I am using the word crime, criminal, etc. Is sort of strange. It is not the way it is used um, uh, in official languages. Um, But what I want to express, what I want to say, is uh, that there is the the fact that this kind of male bonding works with breaking the the rule. And what is the rule? You know that is that is. not just a matter of random, but it depends on the society, on the social group, etc. It depends on how a society, or a certain part of the society, a group, uh, defines what is crime and what is good, etc. Does that make sense? Or
2: yes, sir, but I'm just, I'm just looking at it from the sharp end on the battlefield. The Men make decisions within those groups based on group survival. Yeah. So, Started to made padlock treatment. Yeah, because in some way he had uh, threatened the group. Yeah,
1: you know, yeah, exactly. You can
2: see that usually all the way through the process on campaign and bell. Yeah,
1: with
2: what they're doing, what these groups do is whatever it takes to survive. So is that inherently criminal? That's where I'm no.
1: I won't say that that's inherited. No, absolutely not. And I th- I won't have a problem with uh, including the uh, the, dis- uh, the the longing for uh, for uh, for survival uh, as one uh, part of um, bonding, etc. Um, you know, uh, the problem I am dealing with is how um, how becomes. A society, a whole society, and in my case, a whole military society, like as a Wehrmacht, a genocidal society. It's not a uh, not about regular warfare. It's about genocidal warfare. What I have to explain, and uh, the the, uh, the answer is that there is there are only only few steps from male bonding. Um, by um, a regular army to male bonding by a genocide army. That's the message. I'd
0: okay. follow on Doris' question about sources. You said that your work has been uh, based overwhelmingly on the diaries and the letters of participants, some of whom must still be alive. Yeah. What do they think about your work?
1: I did not tell them. Too much yeah, about yeah, my yeah. work. <laughs> they won't like it. I mean, they won't like it. Um, I. What I, I mean, th- um, you have to know that. Uh, yeah, I mean, two things to that. I am uh, the answer has to be a bit more differentiated. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any statistical, um, any um, any good, any um, uh, any clear figures about the portion uh, of the surviving soldiers getting involved in the West German veterans movement. In East Germany, in former East Germany, there was no veterans movement at at all. It was just forbidden. Uh, (coughs) The German West veteran movement denied, until now, has always been denying any substantial involvement of the Wehrmacht into the Holocaust. They, they would say, uh, okay, um, some criminal elements of our troop uh, participated in uh, killing, in murdering civilians, etc. But the, the, uh, usually we, we didn't do that. That's the position of the veterans movement in West Germany until now. However, uh, there are some reasons to estimate the. The, 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 the uh, number of surviving soldiers um, joining that veterans' movement or supporting that veterans' movement at about 10%. Only 10%, maybe 15 or so. I mean, we don't have exact figures for that. <coughs> that means most of the former Wehrmacht soldiers, as far as they survived the war, did not support. Um, the veterans movement and of course I mean we do not know if that means that they do not support the denial of the, in, uh, the participation in the holocaust but there are some good reasons for um, for assuming that um, about half of uh, about one of two of the former soldiers had some ideas and still has some ideas of uh, the bad things uh, the Wehrmacht did um, <coughs> and um yeah. I mean in so far it's not um, it's not um the, the, the whole um, army. Um, and now to be honest I lost uh, the, the the question.
0: It, it was if perhaps any of them had uh,
1: forbidden you to use material. Okay, sure. That. Sorry, yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so um, that's a uh, uh, the final the, the point. It depends on, on who whom you ask. Uh, there were um, uh, before I started with my research uh, there was done some research uh, some oral history with Wehrmacht veterans, mostly with Wehrmacht veterans who did not join the, the, the veterans organizations the, these uh, soldiers usually would sort of confirm um, they would um, sort of confirm at least the participation of the Wehrmacht in the Holocaust and um, they would to a certain degree, have no problems with uh, sort of criminalizing comradeship. Uh, I would assume a, at least one of two wo- would not like uh, th- what I am, what I did present at all. For the for most of the soldiers, comradeship is a positive thing. It's a good thing. It was a good thing, and so they usually don't uh, like what I. Um, have to present by the way uh, it's not only about the former uh, Wehrmacht Wehrmacht soldiers um, there are also um, active soldiers German soldiers now uh, members of the uh, Bundeswehr the German army who uh, definitely do not like to uh, sort of get uh, the ideal of comradeship uh, contaminated with any ideas of, of crime I don't know how American soldiers uh, are thinking about that, but uh, that's my experience from Germany.
3: Well,
0: Professor Kuhn, some of your uh, uh, German uh, sources may not like what you have to say, but we like what you have to say yeah. very much.
1: Thank you. Uh, before uh, drawing things to an end,
0: may I just remind you that next Wednesday uh, we have the fourth presentation, this time by Robert Pape, Political Science Department, University of Chicago, and an alum of... The strategic logic of suicide terrorism, twelve fifteen, next week, next Wednesday, in this place.
2: So, Professor Thomas Kuhn, thank you so much for coming to talk to us.
1: Thank you once again for.